We're in 2 Kings chapter 16, and we left off in verse 7 last time. 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 7, as we continue verse by verse through this book. While he was under attack by Syria and Israel, Judas King Ahaz sold himself out to the Assyrian king. And we talked about how not only was Judah under attack from a Gentile nation, the external enemy, but also from her sister nation, Israel, which I would consider an internal enemy since it was God's perfect will that they be one nation. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, has exceeded the wickedness of many of the kings before him, sacrificed his children in the fire, and not only was he an idolater, he was an idol maker, and he burnt incense under every green tree and on the mountain anywhere he took a notion to, and now he aggravates his sin By telling the Assyrian king, this is a Gentile king, I am thy servant and thy son. Now we learned last week why Ahaz's conspiracy to fight against Israel was not God's perfect will. So if you didn't hear that lesson, I would suggest that you go find the Facebook recording of it and listen to it. And in rebellion, Ahaz chose to set himself against God's will. Instead, he should have chosen to obey and join himself to God's will. And now we're going to look at Ahaz's plea to the king of Assyria. There in verse 7, and I'll go ahead and reread verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. As I pointed out last week, Syria and Assyria are two different countries He said, come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And this is actually the idea that many people have of being delivered. When a tornado destroys a town, people want prayer for that town and for the survivors. When a country is under a military attack, People want prayer for that country. When a person gets cancer, people may ask for prayer for that person. And what that tornado, that military attack, and that cancer all have in common is that those are earthly enemies that rise up against us. And since many, maybe even most of you have... Facebook accounts, or if you're like me, you don't, and you just creep on everyone else's to find out what's going on in the neighborhood. 
you'll notice that almost every request, every prayer request on Facebook is for something earthly. It's for something physical. And what is rarely seen is a prayer for repentance. It's on there, but it's rarely seen. The average person doesn't want to hear that. The average person wants a God who saves, but not one who judges. They want a God who only heals at their command, but not a God who lets a person die from their illness or their injury. Come up and save me is the cry, especially in this case with Ahaz. It's the cry of the desperate. It's the cry of the flesh when it's in immediate danger. But what does the Bible say about such an attitude as Ahaz possessed? Jeremiah 14, verses 1 through 5. Yes, Nelda, I'm going to read from Jeremiah again. That was her favorite book. Jeremiah 14, verses 1 through 5. And you can just write this down in your notes. Don't try to turn there for sake of time. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth. Now that's a drought. Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languish. They are black unto the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up. And their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. They came to the pits and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. Because the ground is chapped, for there was no rain in the earth. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yea, the hind also calved in the field and forsook it because there was no grass. Now, Judah was in big trouble in those days of Jeremiah, and they are here too, but referring to the days of Jeremiah, because there was a drought and there was about to be a famine. But listen to what God told Jeremiah when it came to praying for these people. In verses 10 through 12, it's still Jeremiah 14, verses 10 through 12. Thus saith the Lord unto this people, they have loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. That word visit means punish. Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people for their good. Now that whole thing is necessary. He didn't say don't pray for them. He said pray not for this people for their good. When they fast... I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Did you hear that? That's not the kind of God people want, is it? But that's the God of the Bible. God told Jeremiah not to pray for their good, Tob. Hebrew word. In other words, not to pray for them to prosper, as that word is sometimes translated. Judah was in disobedience. 
And they had been warned and warned and warned by Jeremiah and the other prophets. But in their prosperity, they ignored that warning. They said, ha, we're doing fine. Why would we need to obey God? Why would we need to listen to these prophets who are a bunch of doomsayers? That's the United States right there. Why do we? We're, we're the most prosperous country in the world. God shed his grace on us and all of those things which are true. And so people excuse the preaching of God's word and the impending judgment by saying everything is fine. And that's the way Judah was until it came time for the drought. The consequences of ignoring. And so it must happen. The wages of sin would have to be paid and not avoided. So when people who rebel against God's word ask their Facebook friends to pray for earthly matters, it would be the same as Jeremiah praying for rain and food and peace for rebellious Judah. God said, don't do it. I'll tell you something you can never go wrong in doing. And that's praying, no matter what the prayer request is, that's praying for God's perfect will in any situation. You may say, but God said to pray always. He sure did. He absolutely did. In fact, in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, this was Jesus speaking, and he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now you have to read the rest of that passage to understand the context Jesus was talking about. He was teaching a parable about a woman who had gone to an unbelieving judge so that he would avenge her of her adversary. And she went over and over and over and over, kept knocking on his door. And he finally, even though he said, I regard not God nor man, this woman, I'm going to avenge her of her adversary, lest she weary me by her continual coming. <laughs> when Jesus tells us to pray, not one time does he ever tell us to pray outside of God's will. You won't find that. In Luke chapter 22, verses 41 through 42, just in case a person says, well, it's easy for Jesus to tell others to pray and everything, even in the, the dark times, and to just accept what God has for them. Well, he did it himself. In Luke 22, verses 41 through 42, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And listen to these words. And as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father... If thou be willing. Now, what did he just do? He said, if it's your will. If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, that is the proper attitude to have in prayer. Rather than having God remove the cup of sin's judgment from him, Jesus chose to be in agreement with God's will. Even Jesus submitted himself to God's will. 
So is there ever a reason that any person ought to put his own will before God's will? No way. When you hear a person ask for prayer for a sick loved one, then by all means pray. Pray for healing if it be God's will. Lord, if it's your will to heal this baby, this teenager, this older person, this one who has cancer or who is dying from something else, if it's your will, would you do it? And if not, would you give them grace, show them your purpose? Now, see, that's not a popular way to pray, but that's praying in God's will. People who look at Jesus and, and don't understand why he had to die, and they look at him from a human point of view and say, he never did anything wrong. Why did God kill him? Why did God let this happen? You see, they don't understand the big picture that had that not happened, all of us would have been condemned. Every person born of woman with a man as her father, and that's all of us except for Jesus, would have been condemned. That's why he said, not my will, but thine be done. So unlike Jeremiah, in the case that someone says, would you pray for my loved one who is ill? Unlike Jeremiah, we don't have God's specific will concerning that person. We don't know exactly what it is. I don't know if it's God's will for that person to die, to survive, to be crippled or to be restored. I don't know. So we can't decide that it is God's judgment upon the person that they die or that they live. You may say, well, it was easy for Jesus to submit himself to God's will because he was God and he knew that even though he would die and be buried and be resurrected, he'd be with the Father from then on, so it, it was easy for him. Do you think it was easy for Jesus, the holy, righteous Son of God, who had never in any way been apart from his Father? Even when he was here on earth as the Son of Man, he was never separated from the Father. The Father was in him and he in him. There was never any kind of separation, never any break of fellowship for all eternity. Do you think it was easy for Jesus to take sin's filthy curse upon him? Knowing that sin's curse would cause God to turn his back on him. Because he would say while on that cross, my, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As it was prophesied in Psalm chapter 22. Jesus didn't submit to God's will because it was easy. It was not easy. He did it because he loved his father no matter what his father's will was. My middle daughter, Lauren, went to school, elementary, junior high, high school with a, a friend uh, and, and this girl's name is Carly. And so we got to know her and her family very well. And so Carly uh, recently had a baby. And there were some complications during the birth. And the baby was deprived of oxygen for 16 minutes. 
and was born and kept alive and developed bacterial meningitis. And of course, immediately, all the requests went out to pray for this baby, and we did. But once again, we prayed, Lord, if it's your will, would you heal this baby? We don't know what his purpose was in allowing that. We don't. But we know he had one, and we know it's one that we don't understand. But that as Jesus, we say, not our will, but yours. Be done. And the baby died 12 days later. And one of the things... Sweet Carly put on her Facebook page as she's trying to grieve out loud with her friends and, and understand this and maybe receive some kind of words of comfort. She said, I don't know why God didn't answer our prayer. And she doesn't. She doesn't know why he said, not, not your will, but mine. She doesn't know why he said, I'm going to take this baby rather than to leave him here. And we don't either. But we know it was God's will. And that's what we have to be okay with. So Jesus did that. He did it because it was his father's will. Another example of this, and boy, if Ahaz would have just learned these principles. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, we read what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. So Paul had something wrong with him, and it was like a thorn in the flesh, and he asked God three times to take it away. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. The thorn stays, but you get my grace. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He can say that because God told him that my strength, God's strength, is made perfect in Paul's weakness. It's made complete in this matter. The thorn in Paul's flesh was not some punishment for a past sin. At least we don't have that in the Bible at all. But it was to keep him humble during his ministry. It was obviously painful. He described it as a thorn. It was something he thought he could do the ministry without. So he went to God and said, would you take it away? He did it three times. But ultimately, what did he do? He accepted God's will. He didn't get mad at God. He didn't say, well, I don't, I'm not praying anymore if that's how it's going to be. You know, some people do that. Maybe you have. You thought, well, every time I pray for something, it doesn't happen. So I'm done with that. I'll just let whatever comes, come. That's not the right attitude to have. You know, this teaches us another thing. When our prayers are not answered the way we want them to be, it doesn't automatically mean our faith wasn't strong enough. Because Paul was certainly a man of great faith. 
Now let's let's bring home this thing that Ahaz had not learned in his misspent life as a king of Judah. Let's apply these lessons to our current practice. Remember, he asked that Assyrian king, Oh, come and save me, just like people do God when they're in physical danger. On Wednesday nights, we have prayer time. And I hope you have it throughout the entire week as well. If you wait till Wednesday night to pray, you are way behind. And during our prayer time, we prioritize our prayer requests. The first and most important prayer request is not that a person would be healed of a physical disease or that a church member or a visitor or friend would be able to find a job. The most important requests are those that are spiritual for the salvation of a lost person, something that can't be undone in eternity, something that death doesn't end. The restoration of those who've wandered away from God. The mission of the gospel. When we're praying for Brother Wisdom and the ministry there, we're praying for kingdom things. Things that have eternal consequences. And so we've asked members to limit prayer requests for physical needs to those who are their immediate families. But we ask you to pray... Throughout the week, if you have a friend who has a broken arm, if you have a a loved one who just lost their job and and needs to get a job, you know, somebody maybe you know, because we don't have enough time to squeeze all that in in one prayer meeting and still give time for our pastor to teach God's Word. So it's not that those things aren't important. It's that we have to prioritize those when we're here. And if you ever have a question about something like that, just ask us. Brother Fulton and I are the most approachable people you will ever meet. Ahaz saw only the enemy in front of him. And so he said, come up and save me. But there's a greater enemy, and that's a spiritual one. And he's always on the attack. And he's always seeking those whom he may devour. And it's from him mankind needs to be saved. And if people were as serious about being saved or praying for others to be saved from the penalty of sin, then Facebook would be flooded with posts like this. Pray for the sinners in Maybank. Boy, that's a lot of prayer right there or Dallas, or pray for the sinners in London, or pray for my lost brother-in-law. Pray for repentance. You know, tornadoes and wars and diseases are all a product of sin. They're all, they all spring from sin. We live in a sin-cursed flesh on a sin-cursed earth, don't we? And so... Those tornadoes, those wars, those hurricanes, those earthquakes, and diseases, and murders, and seditions, and thefts, and all of that must come to pass, because that's the best the flesh can do in its own strength. And I want you to look back in verse 7 and notice even more particularly that Ahaz said what he wanted to be saved from. 
He said in verse 7, And out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. He said, Save me out of the hand of the king of Syria, and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. Now let's look at that phrase for just a moment. Which rise up against me. He was afraid for his own skin. Now you tell me if that's not what prompts many, many people to ask for prayer. Because their own hide is in trouble somehow. And he was praying for his own skin. So he cried out to an enemy king to save him from that which rose up against him. And this is the epitome of selfishness. And it's the hallmark of a stiff-necked, hard-hearted sinner. Me, 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 which rise up against me. Now, before leaving this verse, we've pointed out much of the negative that's in the verse, and we need to. We need to learn from it. But I want to show you, an, it's a wonderful truth that Ahaz unintentionally taught in this verse when he said the following words. He said, I am thy servant and thy son come up and save me. He expected the king of Assyria to save him on the basis of his relationship to him as a son and a servant. And in doing that, Ahaz taught us a valuable truth that he didn't really understand, but he said it. John chapter 1 and verse 12. John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, how did I become a son of Kenny and Raynette Shepherd in 1965? I was born to them. And I've been their son ever since. In fact, I was their son when I was conceived in my mother's womb, where life begins. And back then, they didn't know whether they'd have a boy or a girl. There were no gender reveal parties, which saved a whole lot of money. And I'm thankful for that. But I could not claim to be their son if I weren't born to them. And in John chapter 3, Jesus had just told Nicodemus that a man must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And in that chapter, in verses 5 through 7, it says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That word water there does not mean water baptism. Do not get that crossed up. We don't have time to teach on it this morning, but it speaks, there's two things it speaks of. One is, the natural birth of a person, but the water in the Bible refers to the Word of God. You're by the washing of the water of the Word. And again, we don't have time to teach on that, but it says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, with a capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. 
You don't become a child of God by being born to your parents. You become a child of your parents. That's all you are. And what is that? What is the reward at the end of that? Death, the wages of sin. So if that's what you're relying on, if you're saying, well, you know, my mother and daddy were really religious people. My daddy was a, was a Baptist preacher. You know, or my mom, was she played the organ in the church, whatever it might be. None of that qualifies you for heaven. That just maybe gives them something to put on your tombstone when you die. Being born again is what happens when a person places his or her faith in what Jesus did for their sin. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Now you remember this. This is your answer when somebody when you try to witness to somebody and they tell you, oh no, everybody's a child of God, like the Pope said about people the other day. He said, they're all children of God. He was talking about the, the transvestites. So they're all children of God and they need love and what have you. I think he said that about pedophiles too. Well, regardless of what their offense is on this earth, they're not all children of God. Galatians 3.26 says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the only way to be a child of God. By faith in Christ Jesus. Children of God and sons of God are the same thing. So don't say, well, now, one place it says the sons of God, and the other place it says the children of God. They're the same thing. You're, you can't be a son of God without being a child of God. And every child of God is a son of God or daughter, if we use the, the gender there. You can't be one and not the other. And Ahaz was correct in principle when he assumed that being the son and servant of the Assyrian king would be the requirement for that king to save him. Did you catch that? When he said, I am thy son and thy servant, come and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of king of Israel, which rise up against me. He was correct in assuming that because there is that relationship of son, servant, to the king, that the king would save him from his enemies. The problem was not the principle, it was the person in whom Ahaz put his trust. A Gentile king, do you think he qualifies as a savior of any kind? No, he doesn't. And don't be confused with the word servant. We... Uh, mostly Brother Fulton, but sometimes I receive the requests from people who are writing in in Spanish requests for help, or I come across them in other walks of life who have been bombarded by the devil with confusion about salvation. And many of them come from the Baptist uh, denomination, so we don't even have to step outside that to deal with people who have been troubled about their salvation. There's a, there's a common theme there. But this would be one of those verses that would confuse people. They'd say, well, I know I'm a son of God, but I don't really serve him that well. Sometimes I fail, and so I'm really not saved. You're going to see that being a son of God, you're a servant of God. Revelation, 
In fact, do you know what we will do when we go to be with the Lord after he makes all things new in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3? It says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb, that's Jesus, shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. That would be the children of God. Nobody will be there but the children of God. And those children will serve him. So don't let the word son and servant get you mixed up there in that teaching. And O Ahaz was not far from the kingdom of God. If you look at the major religions of this world, and most of them are false. In fact, there's only one that's true. But they all have something in common. They believe that your works... Your deeds in this life will somehow help you have a better situation after you die. They believe in some sort of deity, some kind of God or supreme being. Whether it be one or many, they believe in something, someone greater than themselves. They believe in some type of judgment. And in principle, just like Ahaz, they're all correct, but in practice, they get it all wrong. If you ask somebody who is a, a Muslim, do you believe in an afterlife? They'd say, yes. They'd say, do you believe in God? Yes. How many? Just one. They'd call him Allah. Do you believe that there is a judgment after you die and that you're going to go somewhere good or somewhere bad? And they'll say yes. And all of those are correct, but then they practice it wrong. They put their faith in the wrong person. And even then they're not sure. They have all these works that they have to do and obey the seven pillars of Islam and, or the five pillars of Islam, however many there are. But they're all works. These world's religions are correct in that there is an afterlife. There is a judgment. There is a penalty for bad and a reward for good. And many of them even offer sacrifices of some sort, believing the shedding of blood is necessary for obedience to their religious dogma. But they deny that they are hopeless and can only attain acceptance by the one true God through his son, they deny that. They may believe the historical accounts, the Muslims do, in the Quran. Christians are called people of the book. The Muslims believe that Jesus lived, and they believe that he was a good man and all of that, and that he's in a certain level of heaven, that Abraham is above him. But they deny that he's the son of God, which is the linchpin of this religion called Christianity. It is the difference. There are many things that are different, but that is the difference. What then shall I do which is with Jesus, which is called the Christ? That's what Pontius Pilate asks, and that's the question for everyone. And as Ahaz, they are so close to the truth, yet they're so far from it in their hard-heartedness and their unbelief. Now, because I am a son of God, 
I don't have to cry out to God, come and save me. And neither do you. We have the right to be saved only because of our Father, who He is and what He has done for our sin. You don't need to pray for God to save you. You need to believe that He has already accepted you as His child when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Over and over and over in the New Testament... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He that believeth in me is not condemned. You see scriptures like that repeated and repeated, but what you never see is Jesus say, He that believeth on me is not condemned as long as he also prays and asks me to come into his heart and save him and do all this malarkey that's been added to the gospel. Look now with me in verse 8. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. I want you to notice three things that happened right here. One, Ahaz purchased gap insurance, didn't he? He did. He told the king of Assyria, he said, hey, I'm your servant and your son, come and save me. But he wasn't content to rely upon that relationship for his salvation, his earthly salvation. So for him, just in case, being the son and servant of Tiglath-Pileser, this Assyrian king, was not enough for him to be saved. He also took some money from the house of the Lord and from his own house and gave it to him. Now this is what the religion of Cain does when its members bring the fruits of their own labors to present before the Lord. You remember in Genesis, that's what Cain did. Abel brought a blood offering, and Cain brought the fruit of the ground, fruit of his own labors. He didn't bring blood. That was the, the main offense. They may tell me, oh, I believe in God. Well, so does the devil. They may say, yes, Jesus died on the cross for sinners, but they'll say, but... We still have to be baptized and do good works and witness and pray and then hope we don't slip away from the faith there before we die and all of that. Do you know what they're doing? They're doing the same thing Ahaz did. They're bringing gold and silver to a false god. Because a believer brings no such thing to the one true God. When the Spirit of God draws you through the preaching of the gospel... You come with nothing except your sinful self. That's the only thing you present, and you want that to die. You don't want to say, Lord, you know, reform me. Help me to be a better version of me. Help me to be my best me. I don't want, to, I don't want any part of my best me. My best me, Isaiah said, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. So my best me is a dirty leper's rag. And I wouldn't dare present that to God. I don't come to him with gold and silver. I brought him my sinful self, and although I didn't use these words, I could have said, I want that guy to die. I want to be alive and the one who lives forever. And so when I put my faith in Jesus, that's what happened. And I didn't go back and say, you know what? Just to shore this thing up a little bit, just to button up all the holes, I better bring some money from the Lord's house and from my house. That's what Ahaz did. Ahaz wasn't certain 
that Tiglath-Pileser could save him, and he had a reason not to be. Now look in the, at the second thing. You notice Ahaz took gold and silver from the Lord's house. Now besides being theft, he had no business in there messing with any of the Lord's treasures. Besides this being a theft, there's even a greater lesson we learn right here. In the Bible, and if you've studied the Old Testament with us for very long, you've learned that gold represents the deity of God. In other words, his Godness, his qualities as God. And silver represents redemption. So rather than trusting the deity of God and the salvation of God, Ahaz took that which only God can do, and he assigned it to a false god, this king of Assyria. What a fool. And the third thing we notice is that Ahaz took gold and silver from his house and sent it to the Assyrian king. So whether it was gold or silver from the Lord's house or gold and silver from his own house, all of this was foolish, it was unnecessary, it was disobedient, it was desperate. What Ahaz needed was not salvation from Syria and Israel by the hand of Tiglath-Pileser, but salvation from his sin by way of the Lord God of Israel. And whereas Ahaz and Judah should have driven Assyria away, Ahaz welcomed them into his company and entered into a covenant with that unbelieving king. Verse 9, And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, and that's the capital of Syria, and took it and carried the people of it captive to Kir and slew Reason. Reason was the king. Well, there you have it. The Assyrian king did what he was paid to do. He even killed the king of Israel during all of that. An earthly-minded person might say, well, that Assyrian king, now he was a man of his word. He's a friend to Judah. They paid him, and he came through with the deal. No, he wasn't a friend. He was a mercenary. That's all that is. A hired hitman. After all that God has said about the enemies of Israel and Judah, no legitimate student of the Bible would say that this covenant between Judah and Assyria was a good thing. No legitimate student of the Bible would say that this was the perfect will of God because he let it happen. Listen, God lets a lot of things happen that are outside of his perfect will. He doesn't want man to sin, but man did sin. He gave that choice to Adam and Eve. And they sin. Joshua said, But and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God has given us the ability to choose good over evil. And that was Joshua 24, verse 15, if you're taking notes. Joshua 24, 15. Would it have pleased God if Israel 
had chosen to serve other gods, which they often did? Of course not. But God gave them that choice. And God gave Ahaz the choice to repent and turn to him or to rebel and turn to the king of Syria. Of Assyria, And that's what he did. And with that, we'll close. We're out of time. We'll pick up with verse 10 next week. Father, we're so thankful to have everyone who came this morning and everyone who tuned in. And Lord, we know that regardless of a person's circumstances or background, what we all need is truth. And we need Bible truth on our ears because from the world, all we've received is lies and half-truths and confusion panic and chaos. And Father, your word gives us hope. Your word explains why all of this happens and what you've done about it and what you're going to do about it. So I pray we just trust in what we've read and then make the application in our lives and may we draw comfort and assurance from it. In Jesus' name, amen.